Howdy, my friends. So glad to have you back again for this edition of the History of Christianity. We're at part 14 today. We're going to be talking about monasticism, and we're going to look at the monastic reaction to the events that have been taking place in the church. We're also going to look at the origin of monasticism, which actually did start even before that. We begin with looking at some growing concerns that are happening among some Christians in the church. The new situation that's been ushered in by Constantine, we looked at last week. There was a group that very favorably reacted to that, but then there's also a group that didn't favorably receive the changes that were happening at all. They were actually very opposed to them. They saw that there were many coming into the church and some of them seemed to have motives that were not exactly pure. Some even appeared to be looking for privilege and position by coming into the church now that the emperor had made the church fashionable because he was a Christian. It even seemed that some of the leadership in the church, bishops, competed with each other for prestigious positions. The rich and powerful began to dominate the church more and more. Those in society that had position, that had political power, they began to make decisions for the church and began to dominate the direction of the church. And now that the peace of the church had been assured by the ending of persecution, many saw that security and comfortable living was the greatest enemies of the church. They didn't like that things had become really easy and that people with worldly motivations were being drawn in. It seemed to them like the narrow way that Jesus spoke about had become very wide. We can look back on history and probably agree that there definitely were some big time problems coming in because of what had happened at that time in the church. We might not agree on the reaction that happened with this group, but we can probably definitely see that they did have some very significant points. Many of them then found an answer to these concerns by joining into the monastic life. What then are the origins of monasticism? It started before this time. It didn't just begin in the time of Constantine, but even years before this, there were Christians who had felt called to an unusual style of life. From the very beginning, there were widows and virgins who chose not to marry they instead devoted their time to the work of the church. We talked about this earlier for many women in the church. This was the, really the only way that they could be involved in a leadership role or a teaching role. For them, it was so important to be in those positions. It was so important to be able to share their faith. It was so important for them to be able to teach another generation. They gave up marriage so that they could have these positions. Married women didn't hold these positions. It was only if you were a widow and not remarried or someone who had just chosen never to marry. We also know about Origen. We've talked about him several times. He led a life of extreme asceticism. He didn't just disappear into the desert or move away from all society, but he definitely set an example of leading this life of extreme asceticism. We also know that the early influence of Gnosticism had left a widely held notion that in order to live fully in the spirit, it was necessary to subdue and punish the body. If you'll remember, Gnosticism taught that the body, the material world, including the body, was evil in and of itself. And so to deny your flesh was the way to achieve spirituality. And even though Gnosticism had been defeated, there were still Gnostic ideas 
that had left an imprint. And one of them was this idea that in order to truly live a spiritual life that was pleasing to God, you needed to deny and subdue and even punish your body. From within the church, we also have scriptural background for this. We read in 1 Corinthians 7 that Paul had chosen not to marry. He encouraged others to do that as well because he said that those who chose not to marry had greater freedom to serve the Lord. Not only were there influences from within the church, there were also influences from outside the church. Gnosticism was within the church, so it still is in that category, but it's bringing philosophical ideas from outside in. But there were direct outside influences as well. Uh, they played a part in the development of monasticism. Several schools of classical philosophy held that the body was a prison which must be overcome. One of those was Stoic teaching, and the Stoics taught that passions are the great enemy of true wisdom and must be subjugated. Again, this is that Greek thinking that the material, the physical, all of that is something to be denied. It's something to be overcome. It's evil in and of itself. Not that just particular acts that you may do could be evil or, or good, but anything that had to do with the physical, and especially if it was a pleasing thing for your body, you should deny that. And those outside influences definitely played a part. Remember, we've got people now that are in charge of the church and coming into the church that were very heavily influenced by classical teaching and pagan religion. And although they denied those things or at least put them underneath the teaching of the Christian church, that didn't mean that they didn't carry that baggage with them into the church. We all carry baggage into our religious lives. And even our reading of scripture is colored by things that we've heard and things we've been taught. Other people giving their ideas, we carry that with us. It's something that's very difficult to overcome and it probably is impossible to do. So these people were no different than us. They brought in these ideas and that definitely influenced what movement was going on at this time to monasticism. Many religious traditions in the Mediterranean basin that these people came from included these ideas, sacred virgins, celibate priests, eunuchs, and others who chose lifestyles which set them apart for service to the gods. While those things had been left behind, not everything about them was left behind. They were brought in, and if it was a good thing to live a lifestyle of being celibate or being a eunuch or just in some way being set apart. If that was a good thing in pagan religion, then certainly wouldn't it also be a good thing in the Christian religion? So these things were brought in and they heavily influenced what was going on right now in monastic lifestyle. Christian monasticism drew its ideals from all of these sources as well as from scripture. We can't look at just one thing. It's not even completely, totally in scripture. There are philosophical ideas from the outside. There are other religious backgrounds that people brought in with them. All of these things combined to help create the monastic movement. So what about these people? Who are the first ones that we can look at to say they kind of were the, or this person was the father of monasticism? Well, first of all, we get the word monk uh, it derives from the Greek word monaskos, meaning solitary. So the, the word monk itself comes from this Greek word, and it just meant solitary. It's a person that was looking for solitude. For these people, the desert was attractive because of its inaccessibility. You look back on the background of these people, and you look at them and think, well, they're just trying to deny themselves. They're putting themselves in the most 
uncomfortable living conditions. And really that's not necessarily what they were looking for. It could have been attractive to them in some ways, but it wasn't that they wanted to live in an area that was very difficult to live in. They picked those areas because they knew it would be very difficult for people to come and find them. And there wouldn't be a lot of people wanting to go live in the desert. It's just not a place people wanted to live. So that was their reasoning. They were just trying to get away from all the outside influences. It wasn't just as some kind of punishment for themselves necessarily. It wasn't even motivated by having to live a hard lifestyle. It had to do with wanting to be in this solitary living condition so that they could devote all of their time, all of their energy towards their pursuit of godliness. Two men who are looked at as being the founder of the monastic movement, maybe the first monks that went to the desert, their names are Paul and Anthony. But it's impossible to know who's the founder of the movement. We know that there were people living out in the desert even before these guys got there. So they weren't the first ones to do it. But they're early monks who were written about extensively. We have their stories, so they're given kind of that, that position. But they're just examples of what the movement was like and, and kind of how it took shape at that time. So looking at Paul first, towards the middle of the third century, Paul was fleeing persecution. So he went to the Egyptian desert and he found an old abandoned hiding place there. I believe I read that it was a, a hiding place for counterfeiters and it was just left there and he found it somehow and decided that he would stay there. He spent the rest of his life right there and he spent his time in prayer and living off a diet primarily consisting of dates. He lived for quite some time there in that area and he did have people that came out and looked for him, but he was able to isolate himself pretty well. Anthony was a different case. He was born in a small village on the shore of the Nile. He was born to wealthy parents who were pagans and they died when Anthony was still young. He also had a sister and the inheritance was left to him. It was sufficient for him to live off comfortably for the rest of his life. And that's what he planned to do. He was gonna live off that inheritance and live a comfortable lifestyle. He was set up and he was gonna take care of his sister. That was, that was his goal. However, he went to church and there was a reading of the gospel that day. That reading really moved Anthony and he felt compelled to change his life. And the reason for that is the text was the story of the rich young ruler. If you remember this story, Jesus encounters a rich young ruler and basically the man says to him, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I follow the law. What else do I need to do? I don't feel like I'm at the point where I can consider myself to be saved. And Jesus tells him to give up everything he has and to follow him. And that rich young ruler didn't do that. He, he refused that. Well, Anthony was very taken by that. And he took it very seriously. And right away, he went and disposed of his property. And he chose to give the proceeds to the poor, which is what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do. Uh, and not long after that, he left for the desert. Now, he did leave a small portion of that inheritance to take care of his sister, and he wasn't going to touch any of it, but he wanted her to be taken care of. However, later on, he even decided not to do that. He decided that God needed to be the one to take care of them. So he got rid of even that portion. He left her in the care with some of the some of these women that we talked about that were devoted to just helping people in the church. They were widows who didn't remarry or virgins who decided to never marry. And he left them in their care and went back into the desert. So she ended up not getting any of it either. 
But early on, Anthony regretted leaving behind his wealth for the monastic lifestyle. He felt a lot of regret, and he felt a lot of temptation to go back. And he fought that off. He even felt like he was being tormented by demons. And in fact, when you read the account of his life, he was said to have actually had physical confrontations with demons that left him sore. He would, he would talk about how after having a night of struggle with these de demonic presence, he would wake up the next day and just be sore all over his body, seemingly from a physical struggle with them. We don't know how much of this is accurate, but it's an account that he gave. So it, there's nothing to say that that can't happen. And Anthony struggled. He struggled with this throughout his life. And that led him to retreat further and further away from society and further into the des desert, away from those who wanted to be around him. And he was pursued because the more radical he became, the more people wanted to be around him. They even started looking at him as being a saintly person, and they looked at him as being someone who could work miracles and do healings. So he had those coming after him that wanted to learn from him how to live this monastic lifestyle because he was sort of propped up as the example of one who really led it in a serious, serious way. Or they wanted to receive a blessing from him, maybe a healing from him. And you can imagine Anthony wasn't all that excited about that. But he did eventually agree to allow a small group of disciples to live near him as long as they agreed that he didn't have to interact with them a whole lot. He would infrequently go to them and, and give them some instructions. They would kind of take care of him and make sure he had things to eat. Even at the very end of his life when he became very feeble, a couple of these disciples actually lived with him so they could care for him. And he lived that way for the rest of his life. He died in AD 356. And these two men, Paul and Anthony, left a great impression of early monasticism. So what was that monastic life like? There were many who came to the desert to live the monastic life. It wasn't just these two guys. There were some there already when Paul and Anthony went out there. That's why we know they didn't start it. And many, many came after them, including those who came during the time of Constantine. Uh, there was a big movement, obviously, at that time to, to leave, but this movement had already begun. So what was that life like? Well, as you probably could guess, they lived an extremely simple life. Uh, there were some who planted gardens, but most of them earned a living weaving baskets and mats for trade. So they would find people uh, or go into the town, whatever it might be, and they would trade for food. They would trade for just the very basics that they needed to live on. Never anything for themselves other than just what they needed to live. So their diet consisted of very simple fare. They ate bread. And occasionally they would get fruit, vegetables, and oil, not a whole lot of that, mostly bread and what they could find in the desert. And so they had a very simple diet. Their belongings also were very limited. They had to have necessary clothing, whatever the bare minimum amount of clothing you could have, the most simplest thing, that's what they had. And they did have a mat to sleep on. They didn't want to own books, even a Bible. They rejected that. They looked at that as being a possible source of temptation because they might have pride if they had books that somebody else didn't have. So they frowned upon that. Most of them did not even own a book. But instead of that, they taught each other by heart entire books of the Bible. They memorized whole books of the Bible. I have a hard time memorizing a couple of verses. And yet these guys, they were learning entire books of the Bible. But that's what they put their entire effort into, and that's what was valuable for them. And the fact that they couldn't own a book meant that if they wanted to know what the Scripture said, they needed to memorize it. And so they did. 
And not only did they share the, the recitation of the scripture, but they also shared the wisdom they acquired. They shared stories that they had heard from other monks, older men, as they passed on their pearls of wisdom. And they had a commonality of life, and yet they still had a life of solitude. But they did respect one another, and they did try to help one another. Well, eventually communal monasticism came into play. The reason for this was a growing number of people withdrawing to the desert and desiring to be taught brought a rise to a new form of monastic life. A lot of people are starting to come out now, and they don't all know what to do. They don't know how all they don't all know how to live this lifestyle, and they need they know they need to help each other out. Solitary monasticism gave way to communal living. They began to discover it would be easier to live together and that they could still accomplish the same goals if they all had those priorities in mind that they wanted to accomplish. They didn't have to live apart, and they realized that it was easier to do that together and still stay away from the influences that they didn't want to be around. This form became known as Cenobitic Monasticism, and that word is derived from two Greek words which meant communal life. So the two Greek words together meant communal life. You put them together and you get this word, uh, this form of monasticism. So we're going to talk now about a guy named Pacomius. Pacomius was not the founder of this type of monasticism, but he does deserve credit as the organizer who most contributed to its shape. He really developed this style of monasticism in a way that people could use the example that he set to continue to live it for many, many, many years. Um, Pacomius was born around AD 286 in southern Egypt. As a young man, he was forced to join the army. He did not want to join the army. He was basically drug out of his house, and he was in the army, whether he wanted to be or not. And he was very inconsolable. But during that time, his group of other young men who had been forced to join the army were, they encountered a group of Christians and those group, that group of Christians offered consolation to him, and that made a really profound impact on him. He remembered that group for the rest of his life, and it made a change in the course of his life. Uh, inexplicably, he was released from the army not long after that, and when he was, the first thing he wanted to do was find someone who would teach him the ways of the Christian life and to baptize him. After that happened, he did go under the instruction of a Christian, who taught him what he wanted to know. He was baptized, and then some years later, he withdrew to the desert. To the desert, Pacomius began a life of solitude in the desert, and he was joined only by his brother. He had no intention of ever being out there with any other group. He wanted to be by himself. But one day, he had a vision, and in that vision, an angel instructed him to serve humankind. And at first, Pacomius rejected it. He said, no, this is not why I came here. I came out here to serve God. I, didn't, I don't want to be around people. But he remembered what the impact that had been made in his life by that group of Christians who encountered him when he was brought into the army. And he remembered that at that time, he wanted to serve other people the way they had served him. And so he relented then. And he decided, yes, I'm going to do what this angel is telling me to do. That changed the direction of his monastic life. And it led him eventually to form a group. It started by Pacomius and his brother building a large enclosure. And they then went around and recruited some fellow monks to join them. 
And he had envisioned in his mind that they would form this community. They would have rules. They would join together and they would form this uh, communal type of living. But things didn't go so well. Uh, Pacomius desired to teach the members of this community what he knew about prayer and contemplation, but that group did not survive. It went away. The reason that it went away was there was a breakdown in discipline and the members of the group had not been very well picked by Pacomius. They weren't really on board with doing what he wanted to do. And they actually complained that he was being too hard on them. They thought that his way of doing things was too, that he was asking too much. And so Pacomius decided to expel them and start from scratch. So you may be thinking, well, okay, if Pacomius heard that from the, this group, then probably he, if he started in another group, he would kind of lighten up on them. Well, no, actually it was the opposite of that. When Pacomius started his next group, he made his demands even more rigorous for those who joined. There were a few things that he demanded of anybody that wished to join that community. First of all, they had to give up all their goods and promise absolute obedience to their superiors. So no questions asked, they were to do as they were told. All of them were told that they would work with their hands and none would be allowed to consider any task unworthy of them. In fact, the way Pacomius really reinforced that rule was that whatever was the most menial task was the one that he did. So he definitely led by example. And he also had a rule of mutual service so even those in authority had to serve those under them. Even those, un even though uh, those under them were commanded to do what the authority said, those in the authority were to commanded to serve those under them. So this was a very rigorous lifestyle that Pacomius came up with, and he decided that was the best way to keep what had happened from the first group happening again. And it turns out he was right. That monastery that Pacomius founded on the basis of those rules grew rapidly. He attracted a lot of people to join him. In fact, remember his sister had been left kind of to be taken care of by others. Well, she joined now too, and her name was Mary. She founded the similar community for women. So she was a uh, founder of this same kind of communal living situation for women. Mary went along with that. These monasteries were encircled by a wall with a single entrance. And within them were several buildings. There was a church, they had a storehouse, there was a refectory, a meeting hall, and also living quarters for the monks. And the way he divided up the monks was he, he had them live together. They didn't live alone, they would be paired up, but they would live in quarters based on the job that they did. So all the people that were involved in as cobblers would live together. All those that were gatekeepers would live together. So they lived with the other people that the, did the same job that they did. So we're going to stop there because we're running out of time. And there's more to say about the monastic lifestyle. It eventually came into the church itself. And once again, because it became influenced by those that were in powerful positions and maybe didn't have the best motives in mind, they changed some of the ways that this happened. We'll, we'll talk more about that in coming episodes. Instead of really looking at that right now, we'll look at the effects of it as we go. Next week, we're going to look at another group that also had problems with the main organized church. 
and went and and kind of created their own split group. And it, it unlike the the monastic movement, this created a big issue in the church. So I hope you'll be able to come back next week to hear about that. Thanks for spending time again listening to the history of Christianity. Hope you have a great week and hope to talk to you again next week.